So my text this morning that I'm preaching on is Matthew 2, uh, verses 1 to 12. And as I prayed and wrestled over it, it became abundantly clear uh, that this text has a main theme that keeps coming up over and over and over again. And that theme is worship. What's worship all about? Is it singing? Is it taking communion? Is it praying certain prayers or listening to a sermon? What is worship? I'm going to show you what I mean uh, and what worship is from the text in a couple of minutes. But first, I feel compelled to start with a moment of vulnerability and just say that uh, for me, uh, in the last year, worship has been really, really difficult. Uh, Jenna and I have both remarked that we never realized just how much we needed the weekly rhythm of singing and communion and awkward conversations in the narthex and a cup of coffee and simple prayers with other people. Even if we weren't really into it that week or we didn't feel like talking to anyone that day or maybe we were on a, in a fight in the car on the way here uh, or maybe the prayers of the people seemed boring or that particular song that we sang wasn't our favorite. Um, it did something to us week by week. There was strength that we drew. And so uh, the loss of so many parts of that has felt like a desolation for me. And maybe, maybe you feel it too. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, me preaching to a camera and you at home on your TVs or computers or, or whatever, uh, listening to this just doesn't have the same feel that it does when we're all together. We feel isolated and we feel alone. It's really, really hard. Um, it's been hard for me, and I'm guessing it's been hard for you too. And so my own temptation has been to neglect worship um, just because church feels impossible right now. So my prayer is that God will use his word this morning uh, to reorient us and to remind us what worship actually is, maybe to expand our concept of what worship is so that we can come into worship him. Um, even in this season of desolation. So first I want to walk through the passage. Uh, verse 1. Sometime after Jesus is born in a stable in Bethlehem, uh, a little bit, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, um, these wise men come to Jerusalem, and they start asking around, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And they explain to the people in Jerusalem that they saw this star, his star, rise in the east, um, it's a sign in the sky, and they've come to worship him, to pay homage. Now, Herod, the king, hears about this. And to be clear, this is not Herod Antipas, uh, the Herod that we hear about later in the Gospels, who ex has John the Baptist executed and does all kinds of bad stuff later on when Jesus is an adult. This is actually that guy's dad, uh, Herod the Great, or Herod the First. And Herod I is in the waning years of his reign. He's going to die from kidney failure sometime in the next two years after this account. So uh, Herod I hears this, um, and Herod I is troubled, and all Jerusalem is troubled with him. So, verse 4, what does he do? He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes. Now, mind you, these were sort of his cronies. Uh, Herod I was known to stack the courts, as they say nowadays. Um, he would hire and fire uh, the chief priests at will. He took authority over the temple because he figured, well, I sort of, he built this grand new temple building. So he figured, I built it anyways. I can hire and fire the priests. 
I can be God in this place. So he assembles his cronies and he asks them where the prophets of old said that the Christ, the Messiah, the final definitive promised rescuing king was going to be born. Where is God's king going to be born? Now note, uh, this is just a side note, Herod, the king of Israel, didn't know his Bible. He didn't know what the prophets said. He had asked. And the, his cronies say, in Bethlehem, and they quote Micah 5.2. And Herod hears this, and he freaks out uh, because his power is under threat. So he hatches a plan. He summons the wise men in secret, and he asks them what time the star had appeared. Now, the purpose of this is presumably so that he can know uh, which town to execute all the children under two in and, uh, and what ages he needs to target in order to eliminate this possible king. Uh, and he charges the wise men to come back uh, once they've found this king and bring him word because he says he wants to worship this new king too. Now, we know by this point that Herod doesn't want to worship this king. Herod wants to kill him. So the wise men set out, and the star that they saw at first appears again, and it leads them to Jesus. And verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they go into Jesus' house, and they see him, uh, still a little boy, uh, hanging out with his mom, as little boys do, and they fall to the ground before this child and worship him. And they offer him these costly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, uh, expensive ointments and metals, precious things. And God then warns them in a dream to stay away from Herod. So they take a different route home. That's the account. That's the story that we're reported in Matthew. And I want to draw your attention to four truths about worship that we find in this text. Number one, worship is centered on Jesus. Number two, worship of Jesus is a response to God's initiative. Number three, you can't worship Jesus if you're sitting on his throne. And number four, worship of Jesus is joyful, self-abandoning, and costly. I'm going to say something about each of these. So number one, worship is centered on Jesus. The towering figure in this account is not one of the wise men, and it certainly isn't Herod. It's this newborn king that we find. He is ultimately the one who this passage is about. And think about this. This is pretty obvious. Uh, take away Herod from this story, and you have Jesus and the wise men. Pretty compelling story. Take away the wise men from the story, and you have Jesus and Herod. A pretty compelling interaction. Take away Jesus from the story, and you don't have a story. That's how we know that he is the center of everything in the, this passage. He is the hub around which the spokes revolve. And the burning claim of this passage is that Jesus is the king, whether you like it or not. And some people, as shown by the wise men, recognize that Jesus is the king, and they come to pay homage to him. And other people, represented by Herod, do not. But I want to make clear, this does not change the fact that Jesus is the king. Christianity is not a set of subjective emotions that we feel in our hearts. Um, it, that the claim that Jesus is the king is not something that we stir up a sense of feeling of belief about. It is an objective fact. Jesus is the king. 
We can either get on board with that program or we cannot. Um, so worship is not about achieving a certain emotional state or being in a certain place or feeling the energy in the room. It's not about learning new things or hearing a great sermon or building relationships or making great music. All those are great things, but they're not what worship is about because those are things that we encounter. But worship is not about us. Worship is about the king. And these wise men seem to understand this. They don't come to Bethlehem so that they can live their best life now. They come to Bethlehem to worship, to ascribe dignity and honor and praise and glory to one person. That's what they come to do, to bow down before the king of kings. Number two, worship of Jesus is a response to God's initiative. I see God's initiative all over the place in this passage. Uh, He does at least four things. One, uh, he sent his son, his eternally eternally coexistent, exalted son to be born in a feeding trough. So there's that. Um, Two, he placed this star in the sky that called these wise men from the east to come and worship. If God hadn't placed a star in the sky, if he hadn't ordered the cosmos in such a way that they were signaled, they would have never come. They would have just kept on doing whatever it is they do out in Persia, mixing, I don't know, chemicals and looking at other stars. They would have never found the king. Number three, he signaled the coming of his son. This is so cool. He signaled the coming of his son in advance Uh, over the span of thousands of years by witnessing through the prophets. uh, Hint after hint after hint after hint all throughout the Old Testament about who this coming king was going to be. uh, All the way so that people who really knew their Bible, by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, they said, that's it. He fits the pattern. This is the one we've been waiting for. Uh, God is like, he like signaled what he was going to do, and then he did it. He initiated. Number four, God protects his son uh, throughout the Gospels, but here he protects him by warning these wise men to stay away from Herod. Um, The wise men show up and worship Jesus because God called them there. And this is the amazing thing about this passage that we totally take for granted today. Uh, there's this tendency, at least I feel this, um, to think that, like, Christianity, uh, that I'm an automatic insider. But here's the crazy thing. Um, the beauty of Christianity is that I was an outsider. I am a Gentile. Um, I am not naturally born into the lineage, into the family of Christ. But God, by his grace, called me the outsider in and, and in the wise men, in these men from the East, they're not Jews, they're not religious insiders, they are outsiders by every measure, and they come and worship. It's like God is signaling right from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry what he's going to do, that he's calling people from every nation and tribe and tongue to come and worship before the throne of the king. And that's what he's doing today. He's gathering people from every place together, and they will worship before the throne. They will all worship Jesus. We are the outsiders who have been made insiders who are invited to do that. And it is part of our vocation 
to seek out the outsiders in accordance with his mission to bring them in. This is something that God has initiated and we get to carry out. Number three, you can't worship Jesus if you're sitting on his throne. Uh, these wise men from the east come to Jerusalem, and they're, they're on this quest to find the king. Um, and Herod hears about this, and he's, he is troubled. He's troubled. And he's troubled because Herod feels that his own authority and control and power have been threatened. You see, Herod the Great wasn't born a king. He was not a descendant of King David. Uh, and actually, he wasn't even fully Jewish. Uh, Herod came from this family of thugs and warlords uh, in an area up north of Israel called Idumea. And Herod managed to maneuver his way into power through uh, adept political um, maneuvering. And he actually went to Rome at one point and sweet-talked the emperor into appointing him king of the Jews. And then he went down, and his power wasn't entirely consolidated, so he murdered his opponents. That's how Herod became king. He was not born king. And um, in his later years, Herod became so insecure about his own power um, that he actually had his three eldest sons executed. To give you a little taste, uh, when a group of teenagers tore down a statue of an eagle, the symbol of Rome, that Herod had erected on the temple gates, they tore it down, and Herod, as a, as a nice punishment for minors, had them all burned alive in public. That's the Herod that we're dealing with in this passage. He's a deceptive, paranoid old king who is grasping for control. And he is troubled when he hears about this new king. And I think this underlines the fact that you can't grasp for control and open your hands to God at the same time. You can't grasp for control and open your hands to God at the same time. You either let Jesus sit on the throne, or you have to try to occupy it yourself. But if you let, want Jesus to be your king, you can't be your king. You cannot sit on his throne. It's very difficult for a lot of us, because I know that when I get stressed out, I want to control things. I want to be the guy in charge. I want to manipulate my world through hard work or cunning by saying the right things or doing the right things to get praise so that I can advance my own agenda. But following Jesus means submitting to his agenda, letting him sit on the throne. Number four, worship of Jesus is joyful, self-abandoning, and costly. Look at verse 10 with me. Uh, when the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want to point out to you three things that are not happening here. Three things that are not happening. One, grudging acknowledgement. Oh, I guess we got to go worship this child this week. All right, here we are. Yeah, I guess you're the king. No, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. This is what they've journeyed all this way for. This is the best thing in the world to them. 
This is more valuable than anything they were doing at home. They've come out here, and now they've found him. It's joyful. Another thing that's not happening, self-importance. Do you know what it means to bow down? Now, mind you, they didn't have carpet in most places back then. I don't think in any places. So they got down on their knees. They knelt in the dust, and they got in the level on the level below that of a two-year-old. They made themselves small and dirty to show that the other is exalted and pure. That's what, they, that's what worship is. It's bowing down and acknowledging that another is higher than you are. Third thing that's not happening, charity. Uh, they don't bring gold and frankincense and myrrh because they think this little child is kind of stinky and so he needs some ointment. Or he's kind of poor and so he needs to be able to, you know, we should probably help this poor child out. That's not why you bring these great gifts. Um, you bring gifts because the one receiving the gifts is worthy. They're a way of ascribing dignity and worth to the recipient. And so when they give these gifts, they're saying that Jesus is more valuable than their stuff. And that's why we give. That's why giving is worship. Giving in the church is not charity, although we do charitable things um, as an act of worship. But giving is not primarily an act of charity. Giving is an act of worship. It's a way of using our pocketbooks to say Jesus is more valuable than anything else that we have in this life. That's why we give. And that's what the, what's happening here. Joy, not grudging acknowledgement. Um, uh, Self-abandonment, not pride not self-importance, and worship, not charity, costly worship. So to sum it up, worship is centered on Jesus. Worship of Jesus is a response to God's initiative. You can't worship Jesus if you're sitting on his throne, and worship of Jesus is a joyful, self-abandoning, costly enterprise. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is really hit or miss in my life. Sometimes I'm centered on Jesus, Sometimes um, I'm joyful and self-abandoning and, and giving of my own resources and my time and my being, but sometimes I'm not. I can be pretty self-centered. You can just ask my wife. Um, sometimes I'm responsive to where God is moving, but sometimes I'm so caught staring at my own problems that I ignore whatever it is that he's calling me to do. I miss the boat sometimes. A lot of the time. Um, oftentimes, I'm so eager to keep control over my situation that seems so out of control that I cling to the myth that I am the king, that I sit on the throne, and that if I work hard enough or make the right decisions enough, then I can make things go well for me. And sometimes, by God's grace, I'm joyful and, and self-abandoning and sacrificial. But it seems too often I'm grumpy and selfish and stingy. Uh, when I read this passage, to be honest with you, I often feel that I have more in common with Herod than I do with the wise men. But this is the hope of the gospel. Um, and it's, this is really hard to wrap my mind around. That another came before me who is the worshiper that I ought to be. 
come, that the king himself stands in our place as a true, as the true worshiper. Wrap your mind around that. Um, that he is the better worshiper that you have failed to be, and because of that, you are able to enter into worship. Uh, God the Son responds to everything that he sees his Father doing. He follows God's initiative. Paul says in Philippians 2 that this, this king who is seated on the throne lowered himself and took on flesh and then lowered himself again to die on a cross. I can't think of any self-abandonment or giving up of one's throne more significant than that. And Hebrews 12 says that he endured this cross, he endured this trial for the joy that was set before him. Jesus is the most joyous person who ever lived. So when we come to worship, we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. When you stare at your computer screen trying to pay attention, you stand in the righteousness of Jesus. He goes before you. Your, he's your joyful, sacrificial, self-abandoning, better worshiper. And so 2021 was a tough year. Maybe 2021 isn't going to be a whole lot easier. I don't know. Um, but I, worship hasn't been easy in a while for me. And I can't promise you that everything is going to get easier. Um, I can't promise you that the pandemic is going to go away tomorrow. We are in a trial as a church, friends. Um, but that's okay. Start here. Um, you have a better worshiper who goes before you. And you have a king who is worthy of all of the worship. And so wherever you are, whatever you have, ascribe him the worth and the dignity and the glory that he deserves. He alone is the one that is worthy of that. And he wants to welcome you into his presence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge to you that it's hard for us to enter into worship. It's hard for us, for us often um, to sing and to pray and to listen to sermons and to do everything that comes with worship in this difficult time. It's hard for us to be generous when we feel the financial insecurity of a troubled economy. But Lord, you are the king. Um, would you provide everything that we need to come and worship you? Um, and, and would you challenge us and bring us into a place that, that ascribes you dignity um, and honor and worth? We pray this in your precious name. Amen.